Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy, and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers, or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. I'm back from a week at the retirement community. <laughs> How much shuffleboard did you play? <laughs> uh, no shuffleboard this time, but I have played it there. Oh. Pickleball, you name it. <laughs> Bingo, dominoes. Just living the dream. I know. I already took a Tums tonight, too, so I'm feeling like I haven't fully assimilated back to my... It's like, oh, my indigestion. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. (laughs) That's what I wanted. (laughs) It wouldn't be a Thanksgiving episode. Post-Thanksgiving episode. Mogab had not planned her uh, Thanksgiving episode very well. Which, you know, it's funny because our first year, our episode was also released right on Thanksgiving. Oh, wait. That's because it's always on a Thursday. (laughs) Oh, wait. Never mind. (laughs) Cut that. Forget I said that. (laughs) No, you leave that in. Like you did me dirty last time. I was like, how do we always drop episodes on Thanksgiving? Well... Last time, Mogab forgot that it was dropping on Thanksgiving. She didn't get a chance to do her turkey sounds. uh, And if the people love anything (laughs) other than Waffle House and raccoon content, it's bird sounds. That's exactly what they come here for. Remember our bird sounds audio tape we were going to make? Bird sounds by True Crime Creepers. (laughs) I need someone to keep track of all of our bits out there, the things that we like, you know, because I I forget them. There's too many. Nosey with the light on. The bird audio, CD, things I'm too mm-hmm. pretty for. I just can't. It's too much. <laughs> just too much. Well, I've got a lot for you today. <laughs> just really throw me back um, in. I also have lots of thanks to give. First of all, big thanks to my friend Melissa, who suggested this case like 1,000 years ago. We were It was probably like three or four months into the podcast. She suggested this case, and I'm just now getting around to it. I'm so sorry. She knows that's on brand for you. It's fine. <laughs> it truly is. Uh, and then another big thanks to, let's see, the Columbia Tribune, which Ooh. helped a lot with this case. And I feel like I watched uh, an episode of 
2020? It's not in my source notes. <laughs> oh, well, I'm not linking it. <laughs> Dang it. What did I want? Oh, hello. It is up here, right here. Uh, a big thanks to the documentary Dream Killer. I had to rent it on Amazon, but it was totally worth <laughs> it. Um, it was really good documentary. So big thanks to those two places. Do you have a running list of all of the documentaries or like shows or ep- things you've watched? Like just like a... I just love mm, like a, no. you know, how they do Spotify wrapped. Yeah, actually, I I kind I of wish do. They did that for like your Netflix streaming. It'd probably be really concerning. But it's it's on twenty seven different streaming platforms. It's not like on one. There's like HBO. That's probably in your best interest because you're definitely on some watch list somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like Jesus, no. this girl. No. All right, are you ready? For this story. I am, but now I can't quit thinking about Spotify wrapped, and I just am curious what who your top artist would be. I don't... Um, Are you familiar with what I'm talking I'm an, about? I'm, yeah, I am, and spot. it's the only time of year that I regret not using Spotify more, but I am an Apple Music gal. Uh, so sorry. Mm, yeah, you should be. That's Apple awful for you. Okay. Music and Apple podcasts. Before we get into the episode today... We're going on a break. We want to make an announcement. We will be going on our winter break. So next week will be our last episode before we go on our winter break. And then we will be back like mid-January. So we're very excited for this break. We really need it pretty badly. Yeah, listen, I know that you guys are devastated but we need it we're getting a little crispy over here so we sure are but we'll still be active on the patreon you'll still get your bonus episode and your mini creeps for december and for january so um if you truly just miss us too much over the break you can head over to the patreon um check out our levels over there and um you can sign up for some bonus content all right on the night of halloween 2001 kent heitholt was murdered He was a husband and a father to teenage kids when he was killed. His friends called him Heidi, and he had, and he was described as a gentle giant, a kind and easygoing man who worked as the sports editor for the Columbia Daily Tribune in Columbia, Missouri. He was the kind of editor who would take his writing staff under his wing, give them support, mentor them if they needed it. Like, that's just the type of person he was. We're always in Missouri. This time once again, once again, always. Which, but like always in the fall. <laughs> and my friend Melissa fall. is from Missouri, so makes sense. On October 31st, 2001, the sports staff at the Tribune was busy getting ready for the upcoming basketball season. They were working long into the night, and it wasn't until around like 2 a.m. that Kent finally left his office. He walked to his car, and one of his sports writers, Michael Boyd, saw him walk out of the building and drove his car up to talk with him for a few minutes. He said they talked about this stray cat that had been clawing at Kent's tires. And then between 2.15 and 2.20, Michael said goodnight and drove off out of the parking lot. Just a few minutes later, like maybe five or ten minutes later, custodial staff member Shauna Ornt came out to the parking lot to smoke a cigarette, and she saw two guys duck down behind a car. This freaked her out, so she ran back inside uh, to the office, and she told the like head custodian, Jerry Trump, what she'd seen. So Jerry went out to investigate and he raised the, the dock door and he saw two people near Kent Heitholt's car. One of them stood up and said, somebody's hurt, man. 
And then both of them quickly walked around through an alleyway, walking off. Oh, my God. Did did he see his, their faces? She, uh, Shauna got a better look at their faces when she was smoking a cigarette. Jerry, mm. um, no. And we'll get to that. That'll actually be important later. Jerry and, Sha- Jerry and Shauna got closer to Kent's car, and that's when they saw Kent lying face down on the ground in a pool of blood. No. Heidi. Jerry immediately got on the phone with 911 while Shauna ran into the sports room for help. She was yelling about something happening in the parking lot. She looked frazzled and upset. Russ Bayer, who covered high school sports for the paper, and another sports writer named Robert Thompson, they followed her out to the parking lot to see what she was talking about. And when they saw Kent lying there, Russ thought maybe he'd had a heart attack. Robert turned him over and checked his pulse while Russ immediately started running up the alley and down the street in front of the Tribune office building to see if he could see anyone running away because he knew this must have just happened. Yeah, smart. Yeah, he'd seen Kent minutes before. But you said there was blood. Yeah, but I just think like even if you see the blood, you're just not thinking. Yeah, you're just not thinking murder like He said it seemed to take police and the ambulance forever to show up, but it wasn't actually that long. And soon the entire parking lot was wrapped in yellow tape and teeming with police. Jerry said he hadn't really gotten a good look at the two, but he said that they were both white, both about six feet tall and around 20 or 21. He said one had a stocky build and possibly dark hair and the other a thin build with blonde hair. Shauna actually did get a good look at the two, and she was able to get with a sketch artist to create a composite sketch that showed a white male with blonde hair that was flipped up at the end, because this is 2001. (laughs) Oh, I'm familiar. (laughs) Nothing got me excited more than the the duckbill flip, let me tell you. With the frosted tips? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'd take it. Yep. And and you put a puka shell necklace on that, Ooh. and I'm done for. You got Logan from Veronica Mars right there, and that was ah the love. You know, of my I life don't know who that is, time. but that is your fault. Put him in a Hollister T-shirt. That is your fault and your choice. I'm pretty sure he wore a lot of Hollister on that show of Southern California. <laughs> your fault and your choice, man. I can't wait to start yelling that at people. Everyone makes choices, and that was a choice. Man, Russell's going to be texting you in like a month. That's your fault and your choice. What did you teach her? (laughs) So once they had drawn this composite sketch, Shauna wasn't really as satisfied as she wanted to be that it looked like the person that she'd seen. And Jerry said that he wasn't sure that he could identify the people he'd seen again. Was, uh, Was it completely dark in the parking lot? Do we know? It was, I don't think it was a very well-lit parking lot. This is like a newspaper office, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. Bill Heitholt, Kent's father, he showed up at the Tribune and he was ushered into the newsroom where the entire sports department had been grieving. This is the next morning. They'd been there grieving all morning. They all just gathered around Bill to try and comfort him. Everyone was just devastated and full of shock. They just couldn't figure out who who would do this to Kent and why. Stephen Monticelli was the sergeant in charge of major crimes for the Columbia Police Department, and Detective John Short was the lead detective in charge of Kent's murder. But there was very little evidence to go on from the scene. Police found two bloody pairs of footprints. They found some fingerprints and a strand of hair at the scene. They took fingernail scrapings, but none of it really led anywhere. 
most of the fingerprints were unusable. The fingernail scrapings did not return a profile, and there was no DNA other than Kent's found on any of his clothes. There were fingerprints found inside the car that were usable, but they didn't lead to a match. They had zero suspects and nowhere to really go with this evidence. The trail quickly went cold, but then, nearly three years later, a tip came in to the Columbia Police Department. The Columbia Tribune had published an article about the unsolved murder of their beloved sports editor, and this included a revised composite sketch. This detective, Detective Nichols, he'd gone out to Quantico for some training, and so he thought he could get a better sketch out of Shauna, so he called her back in and they did the sketch again. This was like well over a year after the murder, so I'm sure her memory is real top-notch here, you know? Yeah. But she did the new sketch, and it was released in this article, and in late 2003, a young man named Charles Erickson saw that sketch and thought he recognized the person. Was it him? Was he like, this looks awfully similar to my own face? He thought it looked a lot like himself. (gasps) (laughs) That's my, okay. I don't know this story, but Uh this is a fear of mine because I feel like I look very plain and I'm like, I swear to God. You do not look very plain. You have very distinguishing eyes and... Uh, your whole face. Yes, you do not look These very things? plain at all. You look very exotic, actually. Oh, I find you oh very God. exotic looking. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm over here like brunette You're hair. Welcome. Brown future. Okay, well, that is the best news I've ever heard because I'm like, I swear if I. <laughs> like, wait a second, this no. looks like me. <laughs> but this is my question because I know this was 2001, but like uh-huh. today in 2022, is uh-huh. a sketch artist still what we're doing? Like, we're not having someone from, like, Pixar come and, like, put a whole <laughs> face together. Like, do you know what I mean? Are we still doing sketches? I just never thought that it was just, like, a detective on staff that was like, I can draw okay and, like, did the sketches. <laughs> I thought they had, like, sketch artists. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I could know. you imagine? We're not doing, like, digital renderings of their face on, like, Like Angela like and Bones. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's a question for the people. Yeah, people (laughs) in the... I feel like every time in the Facebook group, too, we're like, there was a whole thread about people's jobs, and I feel like there's lawyers and all kinds of people in there. If there's someone in the... I know we have, like, former police officers and things to listen, so let us know about the sketching. It sounds sketchy at best. Yes. See, the thing is, Charles couldn't remember the night of October 31st, 2001 at all. He'd been at some Halloween parties that night drinking, and he was mixing Adderall with cocaine, and the whole night was just a blackout to him. The only thing he really knew about that night was at some point he'd ended up at the bar called By George with his friend Ryan Ferguson, and that bar was near the Tribune offices where the murder had taken place. Charles went by Chuck at the time, but he has since said that he prefers Charles now, so we're just going to call him Charles. <laughs> of course he does. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Because anyway, it's not 2001 he, he, anymore. <laughs> right. Chuck Bass. He started to obsess over this case. Months went by, and he thought of little else but that night and this murder. He started feeling like his memories were trying to break through, and he became convinced that he had been a part of this murder. 
In January of 2004, he talked to Ryan about it, telling him that he was having these repressed memories of the murder and he thought that he and Ryan were involved. Ryan told him that they had not, in fact, committed a murder that night, but Charles just couldn't let it go. Wait, does Charles know that there was two people in this? Like, Yeah, I think that that information was released. Yeah. Okay. So he's thinking he's, yeah, that would help solidify that maybe he was involved. Yeah. He started having dreams about the murder. He told his friends about these dreams. And he was so full of confusion and fear that he decided to call Crime Stoppers with a tip, telling them that he thought that he and Ryan Ferguson were responsible for the murder of Kent Heitholt. Oh, no. What are you doing? Police got fingerprints from Charles and Ryan, but they were not a match for the prints collected at the crime scene. <laughs> I bet Ryan's pissed. <laughs> I'm sure Ryan is not happy. But Charles couldn't let it go. He was so freaked out by this, so freaked out by these dreams and these moments that he thought were repressed memories that were like coming through. He continued to talk about it and he told a couple of friends about it. In March of 2004, one of those friends called the police and Charles soon found himself pulled into an interrogation room at the police station. Is this not the most trippiest thing though? Like, honestly, could you 100%. imagine? Like, no. you really can't place where you were. I'm and, not assuming I was part of some murder. I know, but <laughs> if there's that. a sketch, if a sketch comes out, though, that looks like you and you don't know where you're at and you were near the location and there was another friend with you who's also on the sketch, you're you're maybe thinking that. Well, especially if you were like on drugs or drinking or whatever right. it was. And one thing I didn't say is that they are 17 at this time. They are young. Yeah. Well, they were 17 when the murder happened. They're like 19, 20 at this time because it's a couple years later. So Charles is in this interrogation room at the police station. And when he tried to explain to the detective that he didn't actually have any recollection of that night, it was just this feeling he had. The detective interviewing him, Detective Short, interrupted him and said he wasn't going to listen to that gibberish. It was a waste mm -hmm. of his time. He said, right now, your hind end, your hind end is the one hanging over the end. And Ryan could care less about it. Yeah. Detective Short moved his chair so close to Charles's that their knees were touching. He was completely in his face. His hand was moving very pointedly. And he said, it is you that is on this chopping block. Chopping block. What I want to hear is exactly what Ryan told you, because that's what's going to keep you in a position to where you're not going to be the sole individual out here responsible for what happened to Kent. And then he asked him, whose idea was it to go get money for drinks? Cause by this time, I think their their theory was that Kent, that Charles and Ryan had robbed, had murdered Kent with the intention to rob him so they could get more money for drinks because they were out drinking. So whose idea was it to go get money for drinks? And Charles said, I wanted to go home. It was Ryan's idea. What? <gasps> the same day, they hauled Ryan Ferguson into the police station, and all he could say was that he was not involved in this in any way. Meanwhile, Charles is giving details about the crime, but he couldn't even get the most basic details right. They asked him, how many times did you hit Kent? Charles said, I only hit him once. And the detective said, well, the problem I have with that is I know he was hit more than once. 
They asked him to tell them what Kent was strangled with. And Charles said, I think a shirt. And they said, nope. So Charles said, maybe a bungee cord or something from his car. So then the detective tells him, well, we know that his belt was ripped off his pants and he was strangled with his belt. Do we even need to address at episode 100 or whatever this is, what is so wrong with this whole situation? I feel like I don't even need to say it. I don't even need to say it. Um, we will get into it <laughs> a lot. What is I'm so sure. wrong with this? <laughs> what is so wrong with this interrogation? But uh, yeah, I hope everybody listening understands or realizes that um, the detective should not be telling details of the crime to the suspect. They should be trying to figure out if the suspect knows the details of the crime. Right. Over in Ryan's interrogation room, he's telling the police that it seems to him that Charles is just making stuff up. And the, detec- and the detective said, how can he make up details of the crime that we never released to the press? And all Ryan can say to that is, well, then maybe he was there, but I wasn't there with him. And the detective Ooh. said, there ain't no maybe. He was there. And Ryan's like, okay, well, I wasn't. And the detective said, well, you can't have it both ways. It's it's truly infuriating watching this. Ryan just said, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. If he says he was there, okay, maybe he was there, but I wasn't. Ooh. I mean, it. okay, but in all fairness, though, he doesn't even, Chuck doesn't even know that he was there. So now Ryan's no. like, he's trying to place me at this thing. Yeah. Well, and the detectives are like, if you don't turn on Ryan, then all of this is going to fall on you. And so Charles is like, all right, I was there. Ryan told me to do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, listen, me and you, we would, we would fall apart at the seams. <laughs> I'm blaming you every time. I'm blaming you every time. <laughs> Charles Erickson was charged with murder in the second degree. Ryan Ferguson was charged with murder in the first. Ryan's family could not believe that this was happening. His father, whose name was also Bill, by by coincidence, the same as Kent's father, he just seems like the sweetest, like salt of the earth kind of guy. Someone you just never expect to find themselves in this situation. Ryan called him from jail, and in the documentary, they, like, played this recording, and he's so pissed that he's in jail. You can just hear it in every single thing that he says, in the way he's talking about the jail, and he kind of apologizes at one point, like, you know, I'm sorry for being such a, like, jackass right now, and Bill tells him in just, like, the nicest way that he might want to have, like, an attitude adjustment because being negative and mean just isn't going to help him. And you can just tell that they have this really strong bond by the way they're talking to each other. Um, Just this really good relationship. It's really sad. Mm. Ryan's bail was set at $20 million. What? Yeah. Bill said for a moment he just felt like saying, would you take a check? You know, just to be like an asshole about it. Are we still in Missouri? Not LA. Yes. And he said the the bail on those bling ring people. Right. Yeah. (laughs) 
And he said in the documentary that $20 million was the highest bail amount that anyone had ever received in the United States for one count of murder, which uh, we know that Robert Durst's bail was actually set at like $3 billion, but he also had almost unlimited resources. Um <sighs> And that bail and side note, Robert Durst's bail was lowered because his lawyers argued that they were using it as an instrument of oppression. And yeah, bail amounts usually are instruments of yeah, oppression. Po- yeah, I was going to say, isn't that the point? Aren't they like supposed to keep you like in jail? Well, they're not supposed to keep you in jail. They're supposed to make sure that you come back for court. Right. So, but it just tends to be the poor people that can't make bail, that sit in jail, that don't have the ease of access to their attorneys, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's just part of part of the broken system. <laughs> A memoir by Kristen Williams. <laughs> right. So Ryan was going to sit in jail until his trial. He couldn't make that bail. But Bill decided he needed to be proactive. He wanted as much information as he could get his hands on, and he wanted it as quickly as he could get it. So in December of 2004, he started making discovery requests on this case, and he got like 11 boxes of discovery, which is all the information that police had gathered. There were crime scene photos and videos, police reports, fingerprints, hair analysis, blood analysis, everything. And he starts going through it, and he just starts seeing like what he can make sense of. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. 
Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. In October of 2005, so this is a year later, after 18 months in county jail, Ryan Ferguson's trial started. Charles Erickson had already pled guilty to the crime, so he would not have a trial. Wait, I'm sorry. Say that again. Charles Erickson had pled guilty to the crime, so he would already, not like, be going just, to jail. Mm-hmm. Yes, pled guilty. Did I, did I just black out or did I miss something? Or that's it? Like he just, he just convinced himself? I think it's hard to understand at this point why he did that. But we will go back and get into it later. But at this point, yeah, he has pled guilty to the crime. Oh, boy. Ryan's trial is starting in October of 2005. And going into the trial, Ryan and his family knew that they would win. There was no physical evidence against him. And they had the video of Detective Short just giving all of the information to Charles Erickson. It's so obvious from the video that Charles didn't know anything about this crime until Detective Short told him. And there was no other evidence against him. They were like, we're for sure going to win this thing. There's nothing on him. They're for sure not. The prosecutor's story was that on (laughs) Halloween night in 2001, Ryan and Charles saw Kent Heitholt in the parking lot of the Columbia Tribune and attacked him without warning. Charles struck Keith in the head with a tire iron and Ryan strangled him to death. The prosecutor told the jury that there would be no physical evidence connecting him to the crime, but that they didn't need that for a conviction because they had an eyewitness, Charles Erickson. Charles testified against Ryan. He testified about seeing the article in the newspaper and how he started thinking about that night and how his entire memory of that night was based on on snapshots as opposed to a running memory. He described it as more like a photograph of that night, like this one still image of this thing that happened and then this thing that happened as opposed to like a fluid, you know, memory of like a recruitment slideshow versus a video. Right. Exactly. But how the more he thought about that night, the more things started coming back to him. And after he talked to the police, it's like his memories were coming flooding back. Mm. At trial, Charles was suddenly this polished expert witness who knew every single thing that had happened that night. He was able to reenact the way that he'd hit Kent. He was able to describe how Ryan strangled him with the belt, where Ryan's feet were, how Ryan was gripping the belt, which is weird because before the police gave him the details of the crime, which is on tape, Charles thought that he was strangled with a shirt or maybe a bungee cord. But suddenly he knows exactly how Ryan was gripping the belt. He told the jury in a very convincing matter, manner that he was 100% certain that he committed this crime and that so did Ryan. Mm. 
And I've got to think how powerful that would be to a jury when you have a yeah, guy. Yeah, you're basically saying we did it together. And and he's pled guilty. He hasn't like benefited really from this. He has pled guilty to the crime. He's admitting what he did. And he's saying yeah. Ryan did it with me. It's not like a deal. Right. Charlie Rogers was Ryan's defense attorney, and he came from one of the best defense firms in Missouri. But that might have been a shock to anyone watching his performance in the courtroom. He couldn't seem to keep a clear line of thinking going. His questioning was all over the place. He was trying to point out during the cross-examination of Charles how originally Charles seemed to think he dreamed this, but it didn't really come across. Like, the point really wasn't made. He pointed out how in Charles's original interrogation that he had no idea that Kent was strangled with a belt, how he'd been shocked to find out that Kent was strangled with a belt, and how that information came from the police. Charles agreed with all of it, and he played the interrogation tapes for the jury, which showed that Charles was being spoon-fed the information. Mm -hmm. But the jury couldn't hear the tape. The audio visuals in the courtroom were so bad that the jury told the court, like, hey, we can't hear this. It was so echoey. And they had no <gasps> subtitles, which is the only reason I can hear anything these days, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I they mean, couldn't definitely. see. Yeah. And they couldn't see the video very well either from their vantage point. And while the video played, the attorney, Rogers, he's just over shuffling around papers like he's not really paying attention to them, to the video, nothing. Wait, I'm sorry. No. You mm -hmm. need to tell me that we're wheeling in a TV like they do in elementary with the strap over the top on the cart that's that old, that has that bad audio visual, but we'll take a whole ass jury out to a cliff in other cases. <laughs> like, we right. can't get a working TV. I honestly think it might have been better if they had wheeled in a TV with the strap. Because I'll tell you, I watched movies on that thing, no problem. <laughs> No problem. Did you, they could have parked it right in front of the jury. I think they had some crazy projector system and the lights are all on in the courtroom. Uh, they can't see the video. The sound is all echoey in the courtroom. Like, it was awful. I can't believe that that's just like the option. <laughs> well, I can't believe that he didn't have Detective Short on the stand while he's showing the video. And I, I don't really know a lot about like procedural stuff so maybe this wouldn't be allowed but if i was an attorney i would want detective short on on the stand narrating i would want to play video. him the video and i would want to pause the video every time he pointed out information and say and ask a question about that and make him say yeah he didn't know that until i told him about it you know i'd want him to make him say that over and over and over again but it doesn't seem like that was what was done here i don't know i also think it's hard for juries to like, now I understand this concept because I do this podcast with you. But <laughs> as a regular member of society that was, like, serving on jury duty, I don't think it would make sense to me of why would a police officer or detective or whoever want to guide someone to falsely admitting something? Like, now I understand this a lot more. But if I was just sitting there listening, I'm like, why would he give them all this information? He's the detective. Like, I, I think it's just a hard concept for the normal person to grasp. They want to close the case. You know, they want to close the case. Right. I do think uh, giving some detectives the benefit of the doubt, which is very kind, I do think that there are detectives that just are convinced that it's this person. 
And they are willing to do whatever they have to do to get them to confess to it because they yeah. know that they did it, even though they don't actually know that. Um, Which, I mean, you know, is not good either. Okay, so this attorney from one of the top defense firms in Missouri showed a map to the jury, this big, large map that was marked completely wrong. It was labeled wrong. Bill said that he had offered to label the map for the the attorney for Rogers, and Rogers had told him no, that he would do it. But he didn't know where anything was because he never walked the crime scene. And he labeled the wrong building as by George, which was the bar Ryan and Charles had been at that Mm -hmm. night. He was called out in court by the prosecutor who pointed out all of the inaccuracies in the map. Like, just so embarrassing for the defense, you know. Wow. Ryan's family was completely shocked. It made them look so bad, and they had no idea how they were going to recover from that. And they couldn't believe they'd paid so much money for this guy. Yeah, what do you do? Like, at lunch, are you like, hey, you're screwing this up majorly? It's not like you can fire him at this point. Like, you can't get a new attorney. And Ryan was just sitting behind the table, just looking straight ahead. Hmm. Shauna Ornt was called to the stand. This is the witness who did the two composite sketches with Detective Short. Mm-hmm. One glaring omission from the prosecutor's examination of Shauna was that he never once asked her to identify the person that she saw that night as being in the courtroom. He was never like, okay, so you're the witness. You drew this composite sketch. Is the person that you saw in this courtroom, can you point him out? Like, I never know, I always asked see her that. to do that. Yes. I know, but I always think that's – I know, but I always kind of think, like, wouldn't we have not gotten to this point if it wasn't the right person? Like, wouldn't she be like, hey, that's not – I don't know. I just always think that's, like, unnecessary. No, you definitely want it on the record that the person that I identified, the person I'm talking about, is that person sitting right there at the defense table. Because, yeah. like, that's the whole point is proving that it was that person that did it. Right. I just feel like we we should already know that, but you're right. I mean – then what's the point of a trial, you know? Well, but I mean, like, if if it was like, oh, the six, you know, four white male and you come up to the stand, I'm definitely saying that's not the person. Well, I like, think that you- is why it's pretty telling that he didn't ask her the question. Because you can't just say, oh, that's not the guy. Like, you can only answer the questions that they're yeah, giving you. And so I think it's pretty telling that he did not ask her because he knew what she was going to say. And Rogers was afraid to ask her that question under cross-examination because he didn't know what she would say. And there was definitely a chance that she could say that it was Ryan. He didn't know what she was what, what she would say. Jerry Trump was also called to the stand. He was the guy that was on the janitorial staff with Shauna that mm-hmm. was out there that night. The prosecutor, his name was Crane, He did ask him to point out who he saw that night, and Jerry pointed out Ryan. This is the guy who refused to do a composite sketch at the time of the crime because he said he didn't get a good enough look. And he said that he wouldn't be, he didn't think he'd be able to identify um, a suspect. Like he'd said that the night of the crime. But now, four years later, he's like, yeah, it's that guy right there. He gave testimony. Um, about seeing Ryan's picture in the paper. He said that his he was in jail at the time because he's like 
a child molester also. Ew. He was in jail and his wife sent him a newspaper and he took the newspaper out. It was like a clipping of an article and it was folded down so that he couldn't see the headline. And all he saw was the two pictures of the two suspects. I'm sorry. Child molesters still have wives. Yes. So do serial killers and murderers. What we do women. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Um, He said that he gasped when he saw the picture because he recognized them. But again, the night of the murder said he didn't get a good enough look. But now, three or four years later, he says, like, that. yeah, that's the guy. Please. Unfortunately, he came across very credible. And that was a really important moment in this trial. Ryan chose to testify on his own behalf. And it seemed like this was kind of a last minute Hail Mary, like last chance to save myself kind of decision because he clearly had not been prepared to testify by his attorney as a witness. Uh, I know it's like definitely a strategy, but I couldn't imagine going away for life or death row or whatever and not saying any, like not getting yeah. to speak. I know. Like, I totally, I know. That would be tough. But it would also be tough to have a prosecutor screaming in your face about how you committed this crime that you didn't commit. Oh, so. yeah. Now, we know from two years of this podcast how rare it is for a defendant in a murder trial to take the stand. Mm-hmm. But he did. And on the stand, he did not show a lot of passion. Under cross, And I just don't think he's a super, like, expressive person. Because yeah. you can see the whole trial. He's just kind of staring straight ahead. Like, he's not like a robot. Like, in interviews, he's very personable and that kind of thing. But... Under cross-examination, the prosecutor, Crane, was just going after him and after him about the most random things. He asked Ryan if he thought Charles was an odd guy. And Ryan kind of gave a half smile and was like, yeah, I think he's an odd guy. And Crane was like, oh, you think that's funny? You think that's funny? Why are you laughing then? And Ryan's like, I'm not laughing. I don't think it's funny. I just am saying I think he's an odd guy. And Crane's like, well, this is America. You so you can laugh if you want. Uh, uh, ooh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. This trial lasted five days because there was no evidence. And yeah. really the only evidence against him is Charles's testimony, his eyewitness testimony, and Jerry Trump identifying him as the person he saw that night at Ken's car. No physical evidence. Yeah. But honestly, if I was a member of the jury and I just watched Charles give his testimony of the crime, knowing he'd already pled guilty, and then Jerry Trump confirmed it, I would right. probably believe them. Especially yeah, since what do you do? Right. Especially since they couldn't really follow the defense trying to explain how Charles had been fed all the information from police and they couldn't hear or see the interrogation tape. Like without that, I probably would like believe it. I don't understand how we didn't reshow that tape or like how it didn't get shown multiple times. Like, I just don't. Uh, yeah, I agree. Five and a half lo- hours later, the jury came back with their verdict. Guilty for second degree <gasps> murder. Guilty of first degree robbery. Ryan just looked shell-shocked, like completely numb. And then he just started crying. He was 19. He'd already been in county jail for a year and a half, and now he was going to prison. Wait, what was he in county? Oh, never mind. 
Because, yeah, because he couldn't make yeah. bail. That was At his else. sentencing hearing, Ryan's father, Bill, spoke. And he said he was completely convinced of his son's innocence. But because he's an amateur, he couldn't prove it. But now, and he's saying this at the sentencing hearing, he's like, now I'm going to prove my son's innocence. Oh. And then he started crying. And he said if he got the jail sentence that he'd been hearing, that he'd, they'd been talking about, he wouldn't live long enough to see Ryan outside of jail. And he was just completely devastated. Ryan was sentenced to 30 years in prison for the murder and 10 years for the robbery. And as he was filed out of the courtroom, you can hear his sister Kelly calling out to him that they're going to get him out. And Bill knew the fight had just begun. The day after Ryan's sentencing, Bill woke up in shock. And once the shock settled, he knew it was time to get to business. He started reading the police reports over and over and over. He made a timeline and flowchart of all the depositions. He started questioning people on his own and digging up his own witnesses. He started going down to the crime scene and walked through it, walked up and down all over the place. He'd go all the time. He especially liked to go at night when the moon was full because that was like it was that night of the murder. Mm-hmm. He'd go around midnight and he'd sit out there until like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Um, there was this reporter that apparently had misquoted something Ryan had said. So Bill challenged him to come walk the crime scene with him. And he did. And he brought a camera with him. And more people started coming out to see the crime scene. And Bill basically became a tour guide of the crime scene. A school bus even showed up one time. And he gave a tour to a group of high school kids of this crime scene. Mm. He knew it like the back of his hand. I mean, it's just a parking lot, though, right? I mean, it's just literally a parking lot. Mm. Yeah, parking lot and this alley and like, I guess like around, yeah, I don't know. I guess like from where they were at it by George to, the to run, where yeah. the parking lot was, like in the intersection, all all the points that were in the police or in the uh, prosecutor's like theory of the crime. He started a website to free Ryan, hoping that that would encourage someone with information about the crime to come forward. And it worked. Shauna Ornt wrote to Bill and said that she had information for him. And again, Sean is the Shauna is the only person that had actually seen the alleged perpetrators enough to be able to give a description to police. She's the only witness. Yeah. So they agreed to meet at the crime scene one afternoon. And Bill wanted so badly to ask her whether or not the person she saw was Ryan. And he finally got the chance to ask her. Was Ryan the person you saw that night? And she said, I am 100% certain that it was not Ryan. <gasps> yeah. Okay, but then, like, what is his, like, what is Bill's, like, next phone call? Like, he can't just be like, hey, uh, let my son out. This is what Shauna said. Like, what do you do? Right. Who do you? Right. It would not be enough. But it felt good. Yeah. This was such validation. He was exhilarated. He never doubted Ryan's innocence, but to have it confirmed like this felt really good. But yeah, it would not be enough to get Ryan out of prison. Um, She said possibly it could have been Erickson. He looked more like her sketch, but she couldn't really be sure about that either. Like she just wasn't, she didn't really think it was him. So Bill asked her what her relationship was like with Crane, the prosecutor. And she said that she told Crane, those are not the kids that did it. They are not the ones I saw that night. And Crane said, well, this one's confessing that he did it. 
She said Crane is an asshole and he made her feel like she was the one in trouble. She was so intimidated by him Uh. and by this whole process. Yeah. Three years went by. Three years of Ryan being in prison. 19 years old, white guy Ryan, trying to figure out how he's going to survive in prison. Vanilla way for Ryan. (laughs) And it was basketball. He'd played basketball all his life, and he wasn't great, but he was good enough to earn some respect. And that respect meant that he didn't have to worry about other inmates testing him. So he had a pretty good thing going there. Meanwhile, Bill turned to the interrogation tapes, and he started studying them. And in the interrogation, Charles told this story about seeing his friend Dallas Mallory at an intersection at 2.30 in the morning right after the murder. He said that he saw Dallas in his car stopped at a red light. He and Ryan went up to him, and they spoke for a little bit. And then they heard sirens, and Charles and Ryan took off running to the By George nightclub. That was the story that everyone believed. That was the story that was told at trial that he had seen this guy, Dallas Mallory. But Bill was an expert of this crime scene. And when he went back to it with the Dallas Mallory story in his head, he noticed that the light that Dallas would have been sitting at for Ryan and Charles to have that conversation with, it was a Mm -hmm. flashing yellow light, not a red light. So Dallas Uh. would not have been stopped there. That whole story wasn't even possible. I mean, you could stop there. if It's not busy. I mean... You would not yeah, be stopped not. there. And you, you, I know somebody who got a DWI for stopping at a yellow flashing light. So don't, yeah, stop I mean, at you them. shouldn't, but I mean, you, yeah. But they're I'm like, they wouldn't see him sitting there at the red light and then go up yeah. to talk to him because he wouldn't have been sitting there because there's no red light. Right. After Ryan had been in prison for five years, they had their first opportunity to enter new evidence. So in 2008, an evidentiary hearing was held, and his family felt pretty upbeat. They felt good about it. This time, they were working with a public defender named Valerie Leftwich, and they had a lot more faith in her than they did their expensive attorney, who just came across like a bumbling fool who didn't know anything about the case. Valerie was very energetic, and she really wanted to do a good job. Eleven witnesses were called to the stand, and they were all asked if they were called by Ryan's attorney to testify on his behalf at his original trial, and they all answered no. So it's kind of setting up like ineffective assistance of counsel, that why didn't the attorney call any of these witnesses? One of them was Dallas Mallory, and Dallas testified that he was scared of the detectives, that they screamed at him, yelled at him, called him a liar, said he wasn't telling the truth. And he finally told the detectives that he'd just say whatever they wanted to hear. The detectives told him that he was driving a car with two females at the time. So Dallas said he was. And at this evidentiary hearing, he said that was impossible because he had no license or vehicle at the time. And he was like, I don't know who these two females in the car are supposed to be with me. (laughs) He said he never saw Charles that night or Ryan Ferguson. Hmm. Shauna also testified at this hearing, saying that she'd told police they had the wrong guy from the start, but that she was too intimidated to say that during the trial. These detectives suck. I mean, truly. I mean, Austin yogurt shop level suckage. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Shauna also testified, saying that she'd told police they had the wrong guy from the start and that she was too intimidated to say that during the trial. 
At the end, Bill was happy with the way the trial went, and he was confident that they would get a new trial, that any judge would look at this and overturn this conviction. It's obviously not a valid conviction. But the judge said that the witnesses had no credibility, and she denied Ryan a new trial. What has Shauna ever done? Why isn't right. she credible? Mm-hmm. I guess because she told a different story at the first trial. Which she didn't she tell a different story. story. But she actually didn't tell a different story because she never yeah. said, that's the guy. She just answered the detective's questions, at, like yeah. what he said, and she told the truth. But she never identified Ryan as the person. Yeah. Ryan better still not be in jail. Unless he actually did it. I guess I don't actually know that he didn't do it. I mean, right. I don't know. Yeah, we don't know who did it. And well, because it's just as likely that we did it as they did it. I mean, Charles has a dream and like recognizes himself in the composite sketch, which really doesn't look that much like him. But this is God, if I if this happened to me every time I had a dream, I can't tell you how many times I would would be pregnant then. How many dreams (laughs) have I had that I like wake up and have a baby and I'm like, oh my God. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you can't just yeah. be like, oh, I, I've i never had that Or I dream. would have already failed this college class that I keep having a dream about right. that I'm enrolled in. And mm-hmm. then I wake up and I'm like, oh, you're 35, you know, like. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is the moment that Bill realized how the system really worked. And he knew that as long as they were in the motion court, where which is connected to the prosecutor's office that prosecuted Ryan, that those judges were going to protect that verdict at all costs. And they yeah, they're not ne- trying to admit they messed up. Right. And they could never win. His mom, Leslie, his parents were divorced by this time. But um, his mom, Leslie, told this story about how once every four months, Ryan could get a food visit in prison, which I'd never heard of this. But yeah. uh, every four months, they can bring him like food. And she would spend like three days preparing all of this food to bring him and she'd slice up like every kind of fresh fruit she could find and Ryan would get so excited. It was his favorite. And so like that's what Ryan's life is, you know, looking forward to fresh fruit. He's like, mom, kiwi this time. Oh, that's so sad. I can't handle it. While Bill is trying to figure out what to do next. Kathleen Zellner is a pretty well-known attorney, especially in the true crime sphere. She has represented several very high-profile clients like Stephen Avery from the Making a Murderer documentary, as well as 19 exonerees. So she definitely knows her way about around getting innocent people out of prison. I feel like that's a lot, no? Like 19? 19? Yes! Yeah, like just... Okay. I mean, when you think of like the 10,000, 20,000 innocent people right. that are in prison right now, I mean, it seems like a drop in a bucket, but it's a, it's sure is a lot to those 19 people. Yeah. She saw an episode of 48 Hours covering Ryan's case, and she recognized from the trial footage that when Ryan testified, he had not been prepared correctly. And she was so disturbed by this case that she wrote his name down on a piece of paper and she told her husband, if this family contacts me, I'm taking this case pro bono. You're never watching as one of these attorneys. You're just like <laughs> never watching 2020 or 48 hour. Right? Like you're never leisurely. Are, 
Well, she you was. Really, she's really watching again. But yeah, but then you're like, oh, here we go again. Oh, right. I can't help myself. Like, <laughs> right. you know, you're like, oh, for the, all well, right. And it just. Pull out my notepad. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, that's my life right now with the podcast. Like, I can't yeah. usually watch anything true crime like, at oh, all. I have to write a script about this. <laughs> yep. Well, it just so happened that Ryan was writing back and forth with this woman who told him about Kathleen Zellner. She'd seen she'd seen something recently about her in the news, some case she'd been involved in where she got the guy out of prison, and she told Ryan about her. So Ryan told Bill, his dad, and Bill immediately sent an email to her, and Kathleen had been waiting to hear from this family, so she called him almost right away. And he said... Come and walk the crime scene with me and visit Ryan. And she said, how's the weekend after next? Oh, wow. She was all in on this case. And Bill knew that she was going to give them the best representation possible. And Kathleen was really confident that Ryan was going to get out. She talked in the documentary about how well Bill knew this case. Apart from walking the crime scene over and over, he knew police reports by number. He knew which paragraphs you could find what information in. He was an expert on the details of this case. He knew it all by heart. And she said that Bill was very unusual in his persistence in fighting for Ryan and staying connected with him. She said she didn't think he'd ever be okay again until Ryan was out. And this is all happening after about six years in prison, four and a half years, I think, since the trial. Um, But maybe six years since the trial, and he's been in seven and a half years. I'm not too sure. Anyway, around six years in prison. Do we know how long Chuck is in prison? Same amount of time. Oh. They were arrested at the same time, yeah. But I mean, like, I didn't know if, like, his trial was, if he got sentenced to the same. Oh, what his sentence is. I think he got 25 years. Mm. 25 years in prison. Yeah. It was his sentence. And around this same time, Ryan gets a letter in prison, and he can't believe who it's from. Charles Erickson. This is (gasps) six years Oh, buddy, we are not about to be Mm -hmm. pen pals. (laughs) He was really apprehensive about even opening it. And I just, I cannot imagine how Ryan could be feeling towards Charles. Like, I, I do feel bad yeah, for Charles. Yeah, but you're not, not opening it. You right. Know? No, you're not. I do feel bad for Charles. I think for whatever reason, like, he truly believed that he and Ryan had done this. He wasn't like Jay Wilds or uh, from the Adnan case or Justin Sneed from the Richard Glossop case who were just lying to help themselves. I mean, at, at a certain point, he was lying to help himself. But I also think that he w- truly believed he was involved in this case and he thought that he was doing the right thing. He thought yeah. that this was the right thing. But Ryan knows it's not true, and I can't imagine Ryan being able to give the same amount of grace to Charles that I can, you know, looking as an outsider. This was the first time that they had communicated since this entire thing began, since the arrest. The letter was a request. He was asking Ryan to have his attorney come and visit him the next time she came by, and Kathleen was very interested in what Charles had to say, and she immediately came to Missouri to speak with him. Kathleen thought he, that he was going to say that, that turns out neither one of them were involved in this murder. You know, I, I was mistaken. Right. I, I don't know what was going through my head, but neither of us were involved. Instead, he took all of the blame for the murder 
He doubles he said, down, but takes Ryan out of it. Yes. He said that he was the only one involved and that he'd done it all by himself. And he said he didn't tell Ryan what he was going to do. And he doesn't remember how much of it Ryan was there for. But he said that he was psychotically giddy and that Ryan wouldn't have been able to stop him if he had tried. This is just like the story I told you in the Maxi Creep about Mary and Miley mm, and the guy yes. went to the the, mm-hmm. the nuns and was like, nope, it was just me. Yes, you know? exactly. Kathleen was dumbfounded. It didn't make any yeah. sense to her at all. And then I'm watching this documentary. It's been going on for like an hour and some change. And in a surprise twist, Charles <gasps> pops up. I didn't think he was going to be interviewed, but then here we are, and he's talking. And oh my gosh. Charles said that he said that to Kathleen. He told her that it was all him because he thought it was the only way that he could help Ryan. He said that since Jerry Trump placed them both at the scene, he didn't see any way around that. And so he's trying to come up with this story that wouldn't conflict with Jerry Trump's testimony. No, Charles, he- you placed us both at the scene. <laughs> Before anybody else. Right. And he said he just couldn't live with himself that Ryan was in prison and he wanted to help get him out. And this was the only way that he could think of to do that. But Kathleen knew that he was lying. Uh, There were just too many evidentiary points that showed that they were both innocent. And she just Mm -hmm. couldn't understand why he was telling this story at this time, you know. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bill wasn't out there just sitting around letting Kathleen do all the work. He was still at it, reviewing court tapes, police records, all of it. And he was re-watching Jerry Trump on the stand at the trial. And Jerry told that story of how his wife had mailed in the newspaper. And the newspaper just opened up to the story about the Holt murder. And it was folded just so. And he saw Ryan and Charles's picture and immediately recognized them uh, from the crime scene. Well, Bill realized that no one had ever spoken with Jerry's wife that had supposedly mm-hmm. mailed him this newspaper article. And Bill knew by this point, he's no amateur anymore. His detective skills were super fine. He knew he could find anyone he wanted to. So he got to work and he found her. And he drove to her house. And he arrived at her house around five o'clock in the afternoon and he introduced himself to her and he told her that he was doing, well, he introduced himself as Bill Ferguson. He did not introduce himself as Bill Ferguson, Ryan Ferguson's father, but mm-hmm. he said, I'm Bill Ferguson. He told her he was doing a follow-up on the Kent Heitholt murder and that she could be a material witness with information that she wasn't even aware that she had. And she told Bill that whole story about the newspaper was a lie. She'd never <gasps> seen that newspaper. She never bought that newspaper. And she certainly never mailed Jerry that newspaper. Oh, my gosh. Two more years go by. Kathleen makes a statement in the documentary that it's so hard to undo these things and that that's what's wrong with this system. That's what needs to change, that it should not be this difficult to correct mistakes. And this is me talking, but when you're in prison, your innocence should matter. It should matter. And it doesn't. We need to recognize the fallibility of the court and that a guilty verdict does not mean that actual innocence isn't possible. We have these systems and laws in place designed to protect verdicts, not people. Ugh. 
And it's, yes, it's important that people get a fair trial, which is also what those laws are designed to do. Make sure that people get a fair trial, not making sure that we put guilty people in prison, but making sure they get a fair trial. But it's also important that we don't put innocent people in prison. The people in Missouri, well, the people in the prosecutor's office, I should say, they were more concerned about Kathleen coming in from out of state and finding all this evidence that was going to make the prosecutor, Kevin Crane, who was now a judge at this point, yeah. look bad. I know. That was the problem they had. They didn't want Kevin Crane looking bad. Not the fact that a person is wasting their life in prison for no reason. You know, it's funny how the more research I do into true crime, the more prosecutors look like the bad guy. <laughs> And if you're yeah. a prosecutor and you're listening to this, I hope you're one of the good ones, you know. But if you're more concerned with winning than with justice, you're not one of the good ones. Kathleen said it's hard to wrap your mind around that kind of evil, the kind that mm -hmm. works so hard to preserve a conviction despite mounting evidence in their face that they got it wrong. And that is evil. And I'm looking at you, Thiru Vignaraja. <laughs> looking at you, <laughs> Thiru. And this prosecutor's office played dirty, okay? They tried to get Kathleen Zellner disqualified. That didn't work. They threatened her. They reported her to the Illinois Disciplinary Commission. They were trying to do whatever they could to get her off of this case. Wow. They really didn't like that Charles had started to talk, especially when it turned out that Charles had been tricked into pleading guilty. Mm -hmm. They had put false police reports in his discovery with fake witness reports that said that people saw him and they had identified him, which was not true. And they told him that Ryan was making a deal and that if Charles didn't plead guilty, he was going to get life in prison. Charles didn't realize until Kathleen showed him the documentation that showed that Shanna Orrant had told Crane that she did not see Ryan Ferguson or Charles Erickson there, and that Dallas Mallory had told police that he hadn't seen Charles there either. And that is when he realized that they'd lied to him six, seven years later. Wow. A habeas hearing was held, and this would be the first opportunity to present his case in a courthouse other than where he was convicted, where it was so obvious they would never get a fair trial. Kathleen said that to get post-conviction relief, there can be no piece of incriminating evidence left on the table. Everything has to be recanted or shown to be false or you're going to lose. They were presenting to Judge Green, and the first witness they called was Charles Erickson. And he testified that he didn't know what happened that night. He'd never remembered anything about that night and that his uh. previous testimony was false. He said the police got him to say whatever they wanted to hear. And on the stand, he was feisty. He Ooh, went. OK, I was hoping he brought up that he was like fed the information. This yes, he went toe to toe with this prosecutor. He was great. He said that he and I, I had originally like wrote in a transcript of this back and forth that they had, but it just didn't come across. Like you just have to watch this part in the documentary. Like he's like going back at him and it's great. And he said that he sold his soul to save himself and he didn't want to die knowing that he had done the wrong thing. Mm. Jerry Trump was called as a witness and he was very reluctant 
but he knew that they could call his wife to testify to testify if he refused. So he might as well come and tell the truth. And he testified that he met with Crane, the prosecutor. And Crane told him, we're fairly sure we have the two guys that killed Heitholt and we need you to identify them. And he pointed to the newspaper article and he showed him the pictures of Ryan and Charles. And Jerry said on the stand that he did not recognize them, but he wanted to do the right thing and he felt intimidated. And he's got this prosecutor saying, these are the guys, but they're going to get away with it if you don't confirm it was them. And again, Jerry was also was in trouble with the law at the time. He had two years of probation hanging over his head and he was scared to death to not do exactly what Crane wanted him to do. Like he started crying on the stand, admitting that he'd lied. Oh, I know, I feel bad for him. And then I remember he's like a child molester. And then I feel less bad I know, for I was him. just thinking, I was like, is that the same guy? <laughs> I know. Now, Judge Kevin Crane was called to testify. <sighs> he says that Jerry Trump, unsolicited, told him, I think I can identify these guys. He said he oh. absolutely did not show him that newspaper. He said he'd never <laughs> risk his entire career on this. He goes on about how he'd be risking prison. He'd be perjuring himself. And he's just acting like, why would I do that? But the fact is, prosecutors have immunity. They can basically do whatever they want in terms of like making up testimony, fabricating stuff. I mean, they have like rules, but yeah, they're not going to go to prison unless they do something like bribe a judge or some like really extreme case like the guy that was like super corrupt down in south texas you know yeah that's just the way it is around here right so he wasn't really risking anything he was trying to win because that's how you move from prosecutor to judge by winning cases which again i don't even understand that like no okay because you you because know, you like won a bunch of cases, you, a- you can be unbiased in a court. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That honestly, that honestly feels like the opposite to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So now the only two witnesses, the only evidence against Ryan have just been on the stand admitting that they committed perjury. And so it just seems like this is a slam dunk. There is yeah. no other evidence against Ryan. Zero. Ryan is at the very least going to get a new trial, right? But the wheels of justice move slowly. And then six months later, on the anniversary of the murder, Judge Green sent his opinion. And they had lost. Ryan's conviction stood. Oh, my God. You know who should be judges? You know who would be a fair judge? (laughs) Who? The mother of twins, identical twins. That person, the the person mm-hmm. who can be the mother of identical twin, Id- identical twin teen girls. That that person should be a judge. So That's like it. you have twin girls, and you're like, well, I guess I'm going to be a judge in about 13 years. And when that time hits, you spend yeah. a little time being the mother to teenage twins, and then you're like, okay, I will accept my judgeship now. And they like put the robe on you, yeah. and you go to you're court. You're like, I'm obviously mm-hmm. prepared to offer and mediate and provide sound judgment mm-hmm. between two parties that cannot seem to get along. <laughs> that sure, to me. Oh, uh, I don't understand how it's how it stood, how's conviction stood. I know. And Kathleen was so pissed. She thought about calling the judge (laughs) and telling him that he was a disgrace. 
But instead, she decided to take his opinion apart line by line and show the entire world what an incompetent judge he is. She said that was how she was going to get her revenge. Judge Green's opinion basically came down to two things. That Charles Erickson had zero credibility because he'd changed his story three times, which I guess meant that only his first story was credible since they were keeping someone in prison over that story. And he said that Jerry Trump recanting would have had no effect on the jury whatsoever, which is just not true. What? Yeah. Everyone was devastated. It was looking like they would never get Ryan out of prison. But Bill said, look. That's why you got to have a backup plan. He's like, I love Bill. I know. He's the best. He's like, just when you play basketball, when you get knocked down, you got to get back up again. You got to have that mentality. That's what he said. I just love him. I just love all the the people in this documentary. He truly is. So Bill's backup plan was a billboard. He'd already been in contact with a billboard company just in case the verdict came back against Ryan. So two days after the murder, or I'm sorry. Two days after the hearing, or um, two days after the verdict. Sorry, God, I said murder. So two days after the verdict came back, the billboard went up. In a giant yellow text box at the top, it said, Halloween 2001 murder witness with the composite sketch next to it. It gave a number for tips, offered a $10,000 reward, and in giant yellow letters on the bottom, it said freeryanferguson.com. He said part of the reason he did it was to show the court and the public that they were still fighting. They had not given up. Ryan's sister Kelly started setting up social media accounts devoted to freeing Ryan, and they just started trying to make this a movement, basically. They created YouTube videos. They had people from all over the world send in photos of themselves, like, in front of, like, different iconic places. Mm-hmm. holding signs saying free Ryan Ferguson. So you've got somebody in front it's of the like, Eiffel Tower, like free, free Ryan Ferguson. Yes. 50,000 people joined the Facebook group. 100,000 people signed the petition. The word was spreading. Kevin Crane, the judge, he was given the opportunity to give this commencement speech at a college graduation. So Bill hired a plane to pull a sign that said free <gasps> Ryan Ferguson around the campus during the graduation. And then they did it again during the homecoming football game and then again during Bill. the Cardinals baseball game. Yes. So they're gearing up for their next level of appeal. And the next level of appeal was the Western District Court. So that's where they went. It was one step away from the Missouri Supreme Court. Bill said he was prepared to take this all the way to the world court. He had already looked into it. I didn't even know that was a thing. I, I mean, was I like, d- wait, I thought you were being funny. I've never heard I of know. that. No, I, I, it's the International Court of Justice. It's in The Hague. I knew that was a thing. But I didn't know that that could be an option here. Like, I didn't know you could go, like, state Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, like, world court. Like, I didn't know that was yeah. a thing. But Bill had looked into it, and he knew what he'd need to do if it got that far. Like, he was going to take it all the way. Oh, yeah, Bill. When you appeal a circuit court judge, and one of the things that's fascinating to me is we're only at like eight or nine years here, and they've already gone through all of these appeals. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like with like Adnan's case, it just took two decades to do that. You know, like, yeah. it's crazy to me. But anyways, maybe they're going a different direction. I don't really know. But um, so when you appeal a circuit court 
judge's opinion, the next appeal option is an oral argument. You basically get 15 minutes to state your case in front of like a panel of judges. Kathleen said you have to spend hours on this 15-minute oral presentation because you never know which piece of evidence they're going to focus on. They filed a 160-page brief. Kathleen had now been working on this case for three years, and she's just like, it shouldn't be this difficult. Like, she's just over all of it. I love her, too. (laughs) The hearing was in Kansas City. Um, Thank God. It's like removed from Columbia, you know? Yeah. And Kathleen's argument centered around a Brady violation, which a Brady violation is when the state withholds exculpatory evidence from the defense. And the violation in question was the fact that it had been withheld that Crane had been the one to show Jerry Trump that newspaper article, not something sent to him from his wife. Yeah. Two months after this hearing, it's 2013, Ryan has now been in prison for nine and a half years Bill and Leslie were in the middle of filming for Bill and Leslie, his parents. They were in an episode. uh, They were in the middle of filming for an episode of 48 Hours when they got word that a decision had been reached. Kathleen called to tell them that the court had ordered Ryan's release for that day. (gasps) Conviction vacated. Uh, Wait, it just happened so quick. I know. It just happened so suddenly. Like one minute they're in a decade-long fight for their son's life and the next second he's just out, free, released. Like you're getting a phone call. I would think it's like a prank. Like, wait, what? (laughs) Right. Kathleen said that up until this case, she had always believed in the goodwill of prosecutors. It's a conservative estimate that 10% of incarcerated individuals are actually innocent, which is where I got that like Mm 10,000 number. I think 20,000 because I think there's actually 2 million people incarcerated right now. So that makes about 20,000 innocent people. That's so many people. 2 million? I know. And Kathleen had helped several of them by just going to the prosecutors and pointing out the holes in the case. And the prosecutors are like, oh, well, let's take another look. And But not this case. They were fighting so dirty here. Like she said this case was disturbing at every level. And for what? Yeah. To take Ryan's life away because you're not getting justice for Kent Eithold. There's no justice for him and his. Yeah, like, do we even know who? No, this was a failure of an investigation of the entire criminal justice system. It damaged an innocent person's life, too, actually, because Charles is also there. And there's still a killer out there of a really great man named Kent Heitholt, who also needs to be remembered in this whole thing. You know, his murderer has gotten away with it. Also, Kevin Crane could win this case and become a judge? Ugh. Yeah. Ryan was almost 30 years old when he got out of prison. He was like 20. Well, listen, Ryan, it's all downhill after that anyways, but. Could you imagine losing your 20s? Just, they're just gone. You've lost them. They're over. (laughs) He moved to Florida to start a new life and get away from the authorities in Columbia, where he felt he'd be a target of law enforcement and the court system if he stayed there. Yeah, you're definitely moving for sure. Mm -hmm. He sued six Columbia police officers for $100 million, citing malicious prosecution, wrongful incarceration, and other civil rights claims for fabricating evidence, coaching and coercing witnesses into giving false testimony, and recklessly failing to investigate other possible suspects. He originally had also named Kevin Crane in the lawsuit, as well as the city of Columbia, but those cases were dismissed. 
those six All officers. Well, the, just, the, just the one against Kevin Crane in the city of Columbia, okay. not the one against these six Columbia officers, um, which included Detective Short. That was the one that interrogated mm-hmm. both him and Charles. Ryan was ordered was awarded eleven million dollars for that. Like last season, maybe the season before, Ryan Ferguson actually participated in the Amazing Race, which was really cool to watch. Like I had never watched that show before, but I started watching that Wait, season. What? Yeah, he was on the Amazing Race. Like after he got out. Yeah, like last year. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I started watching that season because I knew the Holderness family was on it and I really like them. And so I like was watching it just for them. And then lo and behold, I'm just like getting introduced to all these teams and Ryan Ferguson showed up and I was like, oh, my God, good for him. Does he like tell a story? Yeah. Is that like, mm hmm, mm hmm. Wow. He also got like in 2015, he got free tickets to the Super Bowl and he took his dad and that was just like a few months after the one year anniversary of his release and like a good time for them to bond or whatever. But while it seems that Ryan has really been doing his best to make up for the time that he lost in prison, Charles Erickson did not have the same luck. He has not been exonerated, which seems so ridiculous because if Ryan so obviously didn't do this, then neither did Charles. But it complicates things that he pled guilty And on top of that, it seems he truly believed he was guilty for a long time. He waited 10 years to file any sort of appeal. I don't think it was until Kathleen Zellner like spelled it out for him and showed him how he was lied to and manipulated into thinking he'd done this. And I want to feel bad for him. And I I mean, I could get there. Like, I I feel bad because I feel like he was trying to do the right thing. He was like right. trying to, in his yeah. mind, turn himself in because he right. thinks that he did this horrible thing that he doesn't remember. So I get that. But I'm like, you're the whole reason why Ryan lost his 20s too. Like, I, it's just, but I mean, I don't know. But, you know, Ryan is a much bigger person than me, honestly, because I know. like he, I think he does feel bad for Charles. I don't think that yeah. he really like I I'm sure he blamed him for a while. I'm sure he was very oh, yeah. angry for a long time and I think if it wasn't for Bill kind of keeping him grounded and basically telling him to shape up and get, you know, yeah. get his head out of get an attitude adjustment <laughs> that he probably would have gone down a very, you know, darker path. But what was their he, friendship before? Like, were they like best friends or were they just like kind of friends and they went out drink? Like, what was their friendship before? Like, I think they were just at a party and they ended up at this bar together and Ryan gave him a ride home that night. Like, I don't think they were so, really great like, friends. Acquaintances even. Yeah, I'm not okay. 100% sure. Um, none of the articles really or the documentary really went back before the night of the murder. But I do feel if it was like they were childhood best friends or like had been, that would be in there. You know, it's more of just like acquaintance. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really something. This case really, but it's also like, I just, I just believe that they didn't do it. Like I truly believe that, but I like don't know who did do it. But this is the perfect example of how we talk about how hard it is to prove you didn't. It's so much harder to prove that you didn't do something mm-hmm. or that you weren't somewhere. A hundred percent. It's like impossible to prove you didn't do something. Um, in an appeal of Charles's conviction in 2019, the judge basically said that by waiting for so long to file his appeal, he basically gave up his right 
to any relief, which is absolutely insane to me and sucks. It has to be like on a timeline. to Right. And again, yes, they are on a timeline. But again, innocence should matter. Like you should yeah. have the time you need to get the evidence together. He's got a pro bono attorney working for him that went all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court with an innocence petition in 2021, but I can't find any update on that petition. However, he will actually be released on parole next month in early January of 2023 Mm -hmm. after almost 20 years in prison for this. Oh, my God. Kevin Crane, as of 2016 anyway, as of this documentary, is still a circuit court judge in Missouri, and Kent Heitholt's murder is still unsolved. And is probably sleeping just fine at night. Kevin Crane? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he's sleeping like a little baby with his wave machine. Has there been anything to try and solve the murder? Like, has there been any? Like, is it just basically Um, like a cold case now? Yeah. Yeah. Bill continues to advise on wrongful conviction cases, which is cool. I think there is movement in the case. I mean, they're they're doing what they can, but it's they can't do much. They just don't have anything to go on. So without somebody coming forward with a tip or information or something like Ryan, I, I read somewhere that the defense was like, trying to point police towards Michael Boyd, which was the guy that spoke to Kent in his car on his way out of mm-hmm. the parking lot and said that it was him. And um, But that doesn't match with what Shauna saw. You know, she saw people two. running away and t- saw two yeah. white guys and Michael Boyd is black. So that just doesn't match up with anything. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But then, but then could it have been Michael Boyd and the two guys that Shauna saw stumbled upon the body and they're like, somebody's hurt. Like, like get hurt. help. Yeah. And then and they ran away. Off, right. Yeah. Like, could that be, a, you know? So I don't, right. I don't know. But that is the murder of Kent Heitholt and the, pros- the case against Ryan Ferguson. Man, my peep of the week, yeah. Bill and Kat. What was her name? Kathleen? Kathleen Zellner. Kathleen Zellner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kathleen and Bill. Yeah. Peeps of the week. Yeah, for sure. Ugh. Well, I wish do Kathleen we- had like a, you know, we always have like a, or, or we used to do the, like, um, the organization used to pour. I wish Kathleen oh, had like a. Oh, yeah. The Innocence Project, though, right? They're always a good. Yeah. Your local Innocence Project, your state, please donate <laughs> to your local Innocence Project. Yeah. This Giving Tuesday, which is coming up. Oh, yes. I don't know. It'll already pass. That's tomorrow. Oh, but, yeah. you know. That's all right. <sighs> well, well, do we have any shout outs? Oh, I'm sure that we do. Yes. It's shout out time. It's shout out time. If Ooh. you, we have not, we have not talked about the Patreon at all this whole episode. So if you would like your shout out, you got to join the Patreon. At any level, you get a shout out on the podcast. Um, at the $5 level, you also get a bonus episode every month. And at the $7 level, you get all of that plus um, two like mini creeps, which are like shorter episodes every month. And at the $10 level, you get all of that plus a discount on merch and you get your episodes ad free. So hop on over and- to patreon.com slash true crime creepers and check it out. She forgot the most important part. You get our autograph and a decal at the $7 and a $10 level. So sign up for that. You sure do. 
You get a card with our autographs and a decal. All right. You take it away. Oh, my gosh. I am thrilled. I am elated. I could not be more excited to shout out Kristen. Kristen, thank you so much. Yeah, we love you, big. That's my big. Kaminsky. Kaminsky. Love you so much. <laughs> All right. Um, Our next one is Nicole. Thank you so much, Nicole, for being a patron, supporting the podcast. Nicole, one one name, like Cher. Madonna. Nicole. Nicole. Why isn't that yes. been done? Nicole's like a very good one, you know. It sure is. Person, yeah, right? it would be. Mm-hmm. And major shouts to KT Krez G. I really like that. Krez G. Katie Krez G. That's fantastic. Krez-G. Yeah, that's great. I know. I love that. Krez G. Krez G. Krez G. Krez G. G. Krez G. Katie Krez G. Katie Krez G. We've covered all our bases. We've covered all our bases. That's one of them. And last, but last, but certainly not least, Brittany Johnston. I was going to say Betsy Johnston, but it's Brittany. Mm -hmm. But nothing tricky. Just like normal. Just like normal. LOL. Love you guys. Heart, heart, heart. We love you, Brittany Johnston. Thank you so much. Brittany Johnston. That is tricky. That T is a little sneaky in there. I would have said Johnson at first glance. So you're a little tricky, girl. That the the Johnston gets you. Yeah, it does. It does. I have a friend who has that last name and I always want to call her Johnson. Well, that is our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you um for being here today. We really Thank just love you guys. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being here today. Princess Diaries 3. Thank you so much for um, listening and supporting our podcast. We just love all of you. Um, If you would like to support us in other ways, you can follow us on social media. We are at Creepers Pod on all the things. Um, You can email us if you have any case suggestions or whatever. Um, There's a contact form on our website that you can use, or you can email us at creeperspod at gmail.com. What a contact form on the website. Yeah. I mean, that's That's been there for a while. I just never talked about it. (laughs) You can tweet at us too, and I'll check it. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I'll check it. I got the noties on. And um, leave us a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out, and we just love it. Um, Helps our self-esteem. It sure does. Yeah, it sure does. Uh, And otherwise, make sure you subscribe or follow so that you will know exactly when our next episode drops when I'll tell MoGab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps.